How are we doing in the parking lot? Okay. Those, thor those horns are always so uh, enthusiastic, I think. They're not just like gentle and soft. They're like, yes, we're here. I wish the people in the auditorium were a little more like that, car horn people. Beep, beep. All right, if you're visiting, we are thrilled to have you with us, and uh, we are continuing our sermon series, The Word Art of Peter. We've been digging into 1 Peter some, and uh, last week we looked at the first part of 1 Peter chapter 2, and he was giving us a real gift, the gift of our identity in Jesus Christ. And uh, all these images, these word art images that Peter gives us, they, he actually didn't make these up. He appropriated them from the Hebrew Scriptures and then applies them to the church. So we are living stones, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that belong to God, a people dearly loved. We are a treasured possession. And this is uh, important for us to dig into who we are and who God says we are and our identity because a lot of us have lived a life in, uh, where at times some of us have felt the burden of not being loved. We felt the burden of not having a people. We know what it's like to be in a dark place. Um, a dark place that comes through our circumstances, dark place that comes through depression or a mental health issue, a dark place that comes from our own bad choices. We have all kinds of dark places we get stuck into. But the good news for us is that we serve a Lord who's constantly searching for us. He's constantly calling, calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the Holy Spirit helps us in this whole process. He helps us discover that we are loved. The Holy Spirit helps us discover each other, that we have a people to belong to. And I think the Holy Spirit, He helps us believe the truth of who God says we are. That we are valuable to God and we are precious to God, that we are loved by God. And when we begin to come into that marvelous light of our identity in Jesus, we realize, wow, I really was in a dark place. I didn't even realize how dark it was. But now I'm walking in something beautiful. And maybe we don't even feel the full extent of that beautiful light. Maybe it just comes to us as an idea or glimmer of hope. And the only light we see is the light of the bright and morning star. But we believe that that star means the morning's coming and that there will be a dawn and marvelous light. It's a beautiful light knowing who God says you are. What God says about your value and your worth, that is a marvelous light. And because we walk in that light of being chosen by God, we have to testify to God's goodness and his love. And when we begin to testify and share everything that the Lord has done to move us out of darkness and into his light, 
we begin to take up our identity as priests, a royal priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. See, Peter knew the trials and the hardships and the persecutions that were about to come for these churches that he's writing to. They were starting already. But I think he could see more persecutions on the horizon. And that's why he takes time in his letter to talk about all of these identity issues and to help secure us in our identity. Because unless you know who you are and whose you are, you will be incapable of standing against the tides of this culture and all the persecution and hardship and trials that are going to come your way. If you don't know whose you are and what your purpose is, you will be adrift like everyone else. And most people are adrift in the world. They don't know who they are. They don't understand how valuable they are, and they don't understand that God is good and that God is safe and that God desires a relationship. But when we have the faith to believe and to begin to live into our God-given identity, whether or not I feel it in this moment or not, when I begin to act like it's true in my day-to-day life, in my day-to-day choices, it sets us free. When you live into your God-given identity, you are set free. You are a chosen race, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, 1 Peter 2, 9. And he's using this rich imagery, so some of those verses are Exodus 19, 5, and 6. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Our call is to be priests. Our call is to be holy, a holy people, a set-aside people. When you truly believe and live from your God-given identity as chosen, loved, as a child of God, as spiritual stones being built into a spiritual house, when you begin to live as God's priests, not only do you have the identity you need to weather the trials of this world, but you become someone capable of rescuing those who are just being swept along with the waves of whatever is happening around us in this culture, in this world. So in today's text, we are going to be starting in 1 Peter 2.11. And Peter continues on with identity language here. So last week, we talked about the security of our identity in God, the security of being chosen and loved. And we talked about the power of our identity as being priests and missionaries, making spiritual sacrifices and proclaiming all the ways God has moved us from dark to light, that there's power there. There's security in knowing who you are in the Lord Jesus But today, we're talking a little bit about the humility of your identity. There's also some identity costs to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so Peter helps us understand something of the humility that we are called to. Dear friends, I urge you 
as aliens and strangers in this world, in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Aliens and strangers, foreigners. There are a lot of us who don't know what it feels like to be living as a foreigner in a host culture, to be a minority, to be surrounded by people who speak differently or act differently or talk differently. Their worldview is different. Of always feeling like you're a bit of an outsider looking in. And now as we're becoming more and more a post-Christian culture, there are people and circumstances that come at us more and more that remind us that we don't quite fit in. That yes, we're very odd in our sexual ethics, in the, the things that we profess, in what we say uh, uh, is important and what we understand the life to be about. There are some differences there. And those differences are getting clearer. And we're just now getting to the point where we're starting to feel the sting of those differences a little bit more. In our post-Christian culture, more and more we are becoming outsiders. Before, there were certain social credits in being identified as a Christian. Maybe that's still true a little bit in the Bible Belt. I don't know. But now, there, is, there are social costs with trying to just do it God's way and professing Jesus Christ as your Lord and living that in truth. For my part, I don't mind some of this difficulty. I think as the people of Christ, we've always done a lot better wielding a towel than wielding a scepter. We need to figure out ways to let the Lord have the scepter. But Peter is reminding us that we have to own our strangeness. We have to own our foreignness. We have to own that we are strangers in this world. And because we know that we are chosen and loved by God, we are able to own our identity as weirdos and outsiders. That's a crucial message for us. I think I'm spending some time kind of unpacking this a little bit. Because there's a lot of Christians trying to live their faith like they're on a pleasure cruise. It's a heretical form of Christianity that focuses on self-fulfillment and positive thinking, where God is just there to make me happy. He just wants me to be happy. He just wants me to be safe. He just wants me to be comfortable. It's a God created in our own image, a God who's like Santa Claus, who just wants to give us the goodies from heaven, and a God who expects nothing in return. That's not the way that God is. So Peter, he's giving us a gift to remind us, hey, you're a weirdo and you're going to suffer when you take up the name of Jesus Christ. When you take up the cross of Christ. You have to come to terms 
with the cost of being a real disciple of Jesus. See, Jesus, he has a lot of friends at his banquets. He has a lot of friends when he says nice, colorful things that we want to crochet on pillows. Lots of friends at the feasts. When Jesus is turning water into drinks for the party, he's got a lot of friends. When he is multiplying loaves and fishes, there are all kinds of friends around. But when Jesus takes up a towel, there's not as many friends around for that. And where are all those friends that Jesus had when all that friendship with Jesus seems to be giving you? All that friendship with Jesus seems to be offering you is hardship and a cross. Can you be a friend to Jesus then? See, Peter, he's helping us understand something of the humility of our identity in Jesus. Come to terms with being viewed as an outsider. Come to terms with being held at arm's length and viewed with suspicion by the larger culture because you do things differently. And now Peter goes on to show us where the real battle it lays for us. You see, we constantly identify enemies all around us. We know where the war is. The war is fill in the blank. What that other people, those Republicans, those Democrats, those, there's all of these voices screaming who your enemies are who you need to be afraid of, where the battle is. This is where you need to be fighting. This is what you need to be concerned about. (laughs) Everybody's screaming, but no one's really listening, it seems like to me. See, we're very good at identifying the battles outside of us, where the enemies are outside us, where the war is outside of us. We're not very good at identifying the war over our own heart. How worked up do you get over the condition of your own heart? Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Everyone yells, so-and-so did this to me. So-and-so said this to me. Everyone acts like the battle is outside of us. No one wants to fight the battle for the heart. Where are the people getting upset about the condition of your heart? Do you ever get upset about the condition of your heart? About all the things you're afraid of, why is that fear there? About all the things you're angry about, why is that anger there? And then he uses this strange word. It's an alien word to us. Abstain. 
abstain. How popular is a message of abstinence in the world that we live in today? (laughs) We are constantly told by this culture, you don't have to abstain from anything. Our culture defines freedom as you can have anything you want. Anything you want, that is freedom. You do not hold back anything you desire. You don't abstain from anything. That is slavery. And when we don't abstain from anything, when we constantly give ourselves over to whatever we desire, when we don't say no to anything, what does that do to our soul? What does that do to our soul? When we just give ourselves over to whatever that desire is. A soul trained by self-indulgence, self-fulfillment, self-gratification. It's a broken soul. A broken soul looks first to the self as God. It's a soul that is impatient. It's a soul that is incapable of waiting on the Lord to receive anything. I've got to take care of this myself, whatever that desire is. Because I don't think God is able to, or I don't think God wants to, or God in his commands has said no to this. So I've got to take care of this myself. I've got to take care of these needs myself. Peter calls this a war because so many times we're trying to depend on ourselves rather than God. And everybody thinks about abstaining from the perspective of what we're giving up rather than what we are receiving. You know you can train your soul. The Holy Spirit helps us do that. The commands of God help us do that. Abstaining is all about training and patience training and patience, of becoming capable of waiting on the Lord to fulfill our needs rather than the self and what I can obtain by my own hands and my own cunning and good looks and power. And in the end, we receive from God what we, what we wait on for the Lord and what we receive from His hand when He takes care of those desires it will always be quantitatively and qualitatively better than anything that we can procure in our, by ourselves. So God's way is always better. And also notice what Peter says in these words when he talks about abstaining. It's not just any desires. It's sinful desires. So the problem's not with the desires, the problem's with when they become sinful. Well, what makes something sinful? You've heard that adage, maybe, sin takes you further than you want to go, it costs you more than you want to pay, and keeps you longer than you want to stay. That's true. But I think desires become sinful when they begin to mar and cover over and attack our God-given identity. 
of his chosen, holy, set-apart people. Something becomes sinful when it is outside the commands of God, regardless of whether or not I understand God's reasons for giving that command. It's hard for us. But we come to this place, when you set aside the commands of God, you're saying, I know better than God. My way is better than yours, God. And so desires become sinful and corrupted desires when they somehow destroy the image of God in me or the image of God in others. You know, we were created in the image of God. We are meant to be doing certain things. And when desires become corrupted, they begin to hide that, desire, that, that purpose in us, that beauty in us. It's in everyone. And we break it down and we smear the feces of sin all over that beautiful image of who God desires us to be. You see, corrupted desires, sinful desires... They always move us away from trusting God. They always do. You know a desire is corrupted because it's moving you away from the commands of God, loving God, trusting God. That is a corrupted desire. And sometimes things, they start out as good, don't they? But when we indulge in those things without limiting ourselves, without asking questions, is this still good? Does God want this? Is this honoring God? When we don't ask those questions anymore and we just give you, treat yourself, when we live that in our lives, those things we give ourselves over to, they become our idols and they begin to dominate us. They begin to take over. Food is good. Eating is enjoyable. But if you take that food too, too far, it becomes harmful. We end up needing more and more, more and more, better and better to get the same satisfaction and the same level of gratification. Have you lived long enough that you began to notice that? You feed me a steak, a filet mignon, is a 20-year-old, and I'm like, this is the best thing ever. And now I eat one and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to feel that in the morning. We end up needing more and more, better and better to satisfy and gratify. The fulfillment of desire apart from God, it's always going to diminish. And we take God out of the equation and I don't need to wait on the Lord for anything. I, he says no to this, it doesn't matter. I need this. I'm going to take care of this. The fulfillment of desire apart from God, it's always going to diminish. It will always be a dead end in the end. Whether that stuff is food, money, stuff we own that ends up owning us, drugs, sex, sex doing it more and more, enjoying it less and less. How many of you guys have seen the Disney movies, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black pearl. Have any of you seen that? Your kids have seen it, I'm pretty sure, if you haven't. So, you know, it's funny. Sometimes profound truths 
are hidden in the oddest places, even a Disney movie sometimes, even from a pirate character. Arg. All right. Captain Barbosa. He's talking about the curse of the Black Pearl. More and more we came to realize the drink would not satisfy. Food turned to ash in our mouths, and all the pleasurable company in the world couldn't slake our lust. Compelled by greed we were, but now consumed by it. Arg. Do you like that in the cars? A few people in the auditorium were laughing at me, car people, just so you know. Just how ridiculous I sound sometimes. But, uh, you know, that's a profound truth. Without God, that is the reality. The curse of the black pearl is really the curse of trying to live a life apart from God. More and more, the food is like ash in our mouth. I can't get no satisfaction. You see, without God, your capacity to experience pleasure, it's always going to diminish and it's not going to grow. You know, there's some good news for us as Christians. I mean, think, think about, everyone thinks about Christianity in terms of what we're giving up and what we're saying no to. And that we're all a bunch of curmudgeonly little desire, we hate desire. And like we were weaned on pickle juice or something. Or but we've been given so much and the quality of what we've been given is better. So I think about, you know, everything in this world. So if you study physics, then what is the second law of thermodynamics? It's basically the entropy affects everything. Everything goes from the state of order to chaos. I see that in my body. I see that in my desires and my appetites. But there's some things in the Lord that just keep getting better and better. We've got to realize that. Things that are close to the heart of God. What are things that are close to the heart of God? Some of the characteristics of God. We talked about holiness. Look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And then what does Paul say about that? Against such things, there is no law. Your capacity to love in Christ Jesus, it just keeps growing. Your capacity for peace, for gentleness. I am more self-controlled than I ever was as a 20-year-old man. Praise God for that. I have peace from anxiety that I didn't know sometimes in my past. And my capacity for that just keeps growing and growing. See, when we take God out of the equation, that's when things fall apart. When we draw near to Him, 
There's all of these beautiful things that just keep getting better and better. So I want to talk a little bit about some stinking thinking behind our corrupted desires. And that's the problem. That's why these are sinful desires. These sinful desires come from ideas that we believe to be true in our minds. Maybe we don't say them out loud, but I guarantee behind every sinful action, there's an idea that was there before that sin came into being. I've got to take care of this need myself because God isn't able to. God isn't able to. God doesn't care. I've got to take care of myself because God just doesn't care. I'm not that important to Him. I've got to take care of this because God's way is too slow. Or God's way is too hard. God really doesn't have my best well-being in mind. God doesn't understand fully what this feels like or what this need is or what. And this is a big one. This is a big one for me even. Somehow God is holding back. He's got the cookie jar, the heavenly cookie jar, and he's hiding those cookies from me. And if I'm going to get those cookies, I've got to sneak in there and take them when he's not looking. He's got the chocolate stash. He's got the keys to the car. He's got all of the things that I desire and all the things I want, and he is holding out on me. Do we ever think of God like that? This world is always going to treat you like a stranger and a foreigner because you have the audacity to dare to think and say and live saying, you know what? God's way is best. God's way is best. I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to trust his commands because you have the audacity to even attempt to live that way. You are going to be a foreigner and a stranger in this world. Come to terms with that. And surrendering the throne of your heart and giving it to Jesus, how easy is that? Really, living from a place where I don't live my life anymore, I live for Jesus Christ. I know we say words that profess that. Tell me about the reality when it comes to your time and your pocketbook and your, when you're frustrated with your wife or your kids. It's not just hard. It's war. It's not just hard. He, Peter says, it's war. Where'd he go? Sorry. Abstain from the sinful desires which war against your souls. We got to come 
to terms with that. In war, you don't just fight one battle and it's all over. It's constant fighting. And the war that we're constantly fighting is, am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself? That's the war of your heart. That's the real battlefront for us. Am I going to trust God or am I going to trust myself? My own smarts, my own talents. I know what's best for my desires. The truth is that you and I were created with infinite desires. That means when we desire something, that desire doesn't go away. It just keeps growing and building and maybe satiated for a moment. But then I desire something else and something more and something greater. We keep coming up with desires. We keep dreaming the desires up. It's an infinite hole in our souls that needs constant replenishment and constant filling. The war we are waging is learning to entrust our infinite desires to the only being in the universe who has infinite power and infinite love. To trust the Lord enough to wait on Him to take care of my desires. Christian character is not formed by simply not having a desire. But Christian character is formed, and by the way, you can't get it any other way except by fighting a war, except by staring your demons down. You don't get strong by avoiding the fight and running from the battles. And we're surrounded by enemy voices that mock you. They mock us constantly. They come to us in our own thoughts, the demonic kind of thoughts. I knew you couldn't do it. You were a fool for even trying. I knew you couldn't do it. You're pathetic. And we're in this place of brokenness and shame a lot of times. But there is a voice that calls to us, even in the dark places. You were made for more than this. You can do better than this. Don't stay down. Get up and try again. Fight through your shame let your pride be broken. Get back up and live into your God-given identity. And you got to know, this world's not going to give it to you. They're going to call you a foreigner and a stranger every inch of the way. It's not just hard, it's a war. Peter goes on to say this, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day that he visits us. You see, our identity isn't just defined by the evil things or sinful things that we abstain from. Our identity is also defined by the good living that we embrace. This, what this means, what Peter is saying here, is we become beautiful and attractive to the people around us by our good deeds. Beautiful in our service, beautiful in our self-sacrificial love, beautiful in our holiness. This is life characterized by good deeds, a quality of goodness that speaks for itself and leaves the world scratching its head because it doesn't know what to do with us. So if I were to name this sermon, I would say, we'll call this sermon, Come to Terms with the Humility of Your Identity in Jesus. You've got to come to terms with it. The humility of not fitting in, of being an alien and a stranger. This is the call of Christ. Just own it. The humility of giving up sinful desires, learning to abstain from certain things. And the real war, we know, it's in our hearts. We always identify it outside of us, but it's in our hearts. And the humility of living a life of service filled with good deeds. See, our freedom doesn't come from unlimited choices in giving yourself whatever you can conceivably desire. Freedom comes when you take up a towel in service to others. Freedom comes when you steal in yourself and begin to live from your God-given identity as chosen and beloved. That seems like the world is saying this is slavery. We got to know this is our only path to freedom. There's no other place to stand. But when you become free to love, when you become free to serve, when you become free to live a self-sacrificial kind of life, it changes realities around you. And you become a rescuer of people around you. So that's your sermon. Um, and I have an invitation. I made the sermon a little bit shorter today because I wanted to talk some about an idea about what's next as a church. And uh, I thought about the best way to try to share some of the strangeness of my ideas in a way that gets the information out there quickly that you can kind of think about it and that you can find me and give me feedback. Tell me what you think. If you don't want to say, Calvin, this is a strange idea, this is horrible, you need to grow up a little bit, and you don't want to say that to my face, you can tell our elders what you think. That's why they're paid the big bucks. So I talked some a couple months about, uh, ago about a parsonage kind of idea and having more of a presence on this church property. I think our church needs a project. I think the Lord wants to bless a project that we work on together. 
something that we can do together, something that we can put energy into, something we can pool our resources to do. And then when we learn to work together, even doing physical things like building something or starting a fundraising campaign or I think sometimes we don't fully appreciate how learning to do physical work can teach us spiritual lessons as well. And this parsonage idea is all about kind of having more of a presence here on this church property, but I want to put, I want to make myself more accessible to the congregation. Not just as the guy who's preaching a sermon to you, but the guy who you come and you sit around my table. And we play a board game together. We've got lots of institutional spaces. We don't have a lot of comfortable recreational spaces. And so it would be like a parsonage and a fireside room, and it would be a presence here on this church property. I think that's going to become a bigger and bigger deal in the future. I think this is a resource that could be available for, you know, the Word of God deserves to be preached and taught here in Eugene, Oregon. It's going to be hard to, to fund these things from contributions and in our normal ways. So I think this parsonage idea, it's in my mind a way toward building toward hope that this church um, is going to have a time where our fellowship is not going to be so limited. It's building toward the hope that we can have more community together and more time together. You see, COVID stuff has really taken a lot away a lot of our fellowship opportunities, and we felt that. But I want to start now looking at exploring an idea of building toward and banking on a future where we're going to be as a congregation spending a whole lot more time together. A whole lot more time together. That is the thing that I just can't get around. Uh, to accomplish real discipleship. I'm talking about the kind of discipleship that transforms lives. We've always known Sunday morning is just not enough. And now a lot of those other times have been stripped away from us. Our jobs demand more. Uh, the way that our culture does not give us this. But to accomplish real discipleship that changes lives, you need a whole lot of love for that. And the way that you get a whole lot of love, the way that you grow love, love, you need a whole lot of time together. You need a context where you can share life and recreate together. So the kind of the idea that I have, we could, we could make this whatever we want. We could have like something very nice and clean like that. My wife would probably love this. Or something more uh, traditional or English cottage. I don't know. I want to have fun doing this, and I want to do a lot of it together. We could do something more modern or something more rounded or something more colorful. That's an actual house up in Seattle. I think the others are in Europe somewhere. something more winsome. I personally like the idea of building something that this whole community around Eugene is like, what in the world has happened to those people at the Eugene Church of Christ? I want to have fun with this. 
you know, maybe more something fairy tale. This looks like more Hansel and Gretel, maybe not quite that dark or direction. Something with some curves, something that we figure out, hey, what is, how is we going to make this work? It takes some of our artistry and creativity, and then we have fun doing this. So in my dream, this is just me dreaming. This isn't the elder saying, hey, we got to do this or whatnot. This is me putting it out to you guys, my full kind of weirdness of my ideas, that you give me feedback and tell me what you think. We've got, I think this, the Lord has given us this huge piece of property smack dab in the middle of North Eugene here. We need to find ways to use it. So a parsonage where we could live and stay, a fireside room where people are coming in and we're doing recreation in the evenings. Think board games, fireside, put your feet up, strumming guitars, reading books, take sewing projects, whatever the thing is. A writer's guild. We could start a writer's guild and write stories together in the evenings. And people who know how to do that could, we could learn how to play different instruments, could have a fun kids' night. I'm just, we got to find ways to play together. That's two big needs. Pray together and play together. We need to, be, we need to grow into those things as a church. And later on, maybe this would grow into something more, some guest cottages on the property, a community garden, you know, a, a group of people who are living life together for the purpose of discipleship. And what is a space that you would like to just hang out in? To see if we could create this, to see if we could enjoy it. What would it look like? Just kind of think about that and dream about it. I was like, what if we had a glass roof on it? Wouldn't that be fun? I don't know. What is the space that I would like to just hang out with? Would I I'd have my kids hang out in? Let's spend time together. We, how many of you are on a device in the evening? iPad, phone, TV, tablet, computer monitor. That's, and, and we're all doing it in isolation from each other. We're all doing it in the content that we're feeding on. It maybe is a form of entertainment. All of our entertainment, it's been separated from the church body, from the group. We need to find ways to play together. So, you know, I don't, I don't know how winsome we want to try to make this. But guest cottages, what if we had hobbit holes on the church property? But inviting spaces, that people would be like, wow, I want to hang out there. I want to see what that's about. I want to go stay in that. Are they going to Airbnb this? Or? And I don't know what we would want, like maybe a traditional cottage, something that's fun and winsome. You think, boy, so we run retreats out of this. We're hanging out together. We're doing specific discipleship training activities, and we're sharing life together meals. I don't know how we'd want to build it. I'm just putting a dream out there saying, hey, I have a desire for this kind of stuff. And I've learned that when you do something like this and you take some physical steps and you invest in it, the Lord honors that and he uses that. That's kind of always been in me. I'm a builder of sorts. And sometimes we need to create a context where some of that building can happen. So 
I'm just putting it out here to you guys as a congregation. I want to have some fun together trying to do something like this and build toward it. So give me your feedback. Tell me what you think, good or bad, no problem. I can handle it. Um, so that's one invitation. Think about that. The other is, hey, we all got to find ways to just own the strangeness of our identity in the Lord Jesus. You are always going to be an alien and a stranger. There are always going to be a costs, costs associated with your faith in Jesus. And that's not a bad place because we know that we're loved, we're precious, we're chosen, we're a holy people belonging to God. So if you have a need, you can let us know. You can uh, come forward and we can, you can put the Lord on in baptism. You can share prayer requests or needs. Whatever that need is, you can come forward and share that with me. And we're going to go ahead and stand and sing together. <laughs>